before we get started, uh, we're gonna we're gonna open with a song, but I want to open a prayer just because of the importance. Of, uh, my heart is just burdened for what's happening for our brothers and sisters in Canada, um, especially those men who are leading the churches faithfully. These are the same, a lot of these are the same men who kept the church open when Canada was forcing them to lock down. Uh, some of these men have been jailed four, five, six weeks, arrested in front of their children. And now a new piece of legislation, this Bill C-4, has come about, which makes it um, essentially illegal to promote something along the lines of what's considered conversion therapy. Right? Speech that would tell people that they should not pursue the transgender, homosexual, LGBTQ lifestyle. So you can imagine for pastors seeking to faithfully proclaim the word of God and counsel people, they find themselves in a bit of a, of a hard place right now. I had the privilege of being on a G3 church meeting, um, and Pastor James Coates was there. And he, he's optimistic in the sense that at this point in Canada, they have the Charter of Rights, which protects religious freedom. And so he doesn't foresee pastors getting arrested right away on this. He does foresee, though, that this would go up to, like, it's the equivalent of their Supreme Court and decisions being made. Um, but it is the first domino to fall, right? And so he was very honest. He said, if you guys in America don't think that you're knocking on the door of this, uh, then you're fools. Uh, but he's optimistic and no one's getting arrested. But they wanted to take Sunday to just preach on the biblical position of sexuality. Uh, and so that's what we're going to do this evening. But I want to pray first from, for our brothers in Canada, for our country, then we'll worship in song, and then we will jump right in. Father, we come before you this evening with heavy hearts. We recognize, Lord, that... Uh, and what's always been true is still happening. Righteousness is never prized among the goggles. And in the issue of sexuality, Lord, and sexual expression and all that that goes with it, it's an attack on your design. It's an attack on the image of God. It's an attack on you. Lord, you will not be mocked, and we know this. And so we pray this evening that as we look at what your word has to say on this all-important issue, that perhaps it would provide answers to those who have questions. That it would give direction to those who have to have conversations in the near future. And that if anybody were to hear this, Lord, and is struggling with same-sex attraction, that they would understand the truth of who you are and not be governed by subjective feelings. Father, we seek for you to be honored and glorified. Lord Jesus, you are the great redeemer. And you redeem sexuality. And so, Father, we also pray that as men and women of Christ, that we would not shrink back, that we would not fall into cowardice, but that we would stand firmly planted on your word in the midst of a crooked generation, that we will not soft pedal, water down, or stay silent on these ever-important issues, but that we will joyfully, boldly, independently proclaim what you have said. We commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Jeremy's on. Jeremy's on. Jeremy's on. Jeremy's on. Jeremy's on. Jeremy's on. But the camera wasn't on, so I'm glad you said something. Okay. Hi, everybody. You heard me, you didn't see me. Okay. Um, so we're going to open up in a word of song. Uh, Tony, could you grab some hymnal stuff? Is that much over there? We're going to sing the song. I'll hail the power of Jesus' name. It'll be hymn number, it's not Psalm, hymn, sorry. Psalm number 143. Stand as you are able. 143. I'll hail the power of Jesus' name. Thank you. 
seated. Before we begin, as just kind of a introductory word, on this topic, we're going to unabashedly say what the Bible says. Um, but some of us may know people in our family or in our friend network that are in this very place. And so know that what everything that's being said is personal for me as well, as there are people very close to me that I love dearly, uh, that do not have Christ and are entrapped, enslaved willfully in this, uh, in this lifestyle. And so um, this is not coming from a place of harsh, hard-hearted judgment as much as pleading, for the heart of pleading, what, what this is what the Word of God says, and this is just the truth. So I just want you just to know that at the outset, because God's Word does speak forcefully on the topic. That said, if you've driven around the northwest suburbs at all, you've probably seen that really creative, really artistic, colorful sign in people's front yards that says, love is love. Love is love. Sounds great. It means nothing without proper definitions in place. See, what that phrase is trying to say is it doesn't matter your, your gender, your sex, let's use proper terms, your sex, your gender, your, your desires. All that matters is that two people love each other. It doesn't have to be two people, that people love each other. And have all types of odd-numbered, even-numbered relationships. It's kind of a funny statement to make, because in order to even speak on love, you would have to know something of God. Because apart from God, love has no existence, and the person who denies God has given up their ability to account for love. And its origins. And for the person who does call themselves a Christian and does affirm the love is love mantra, then they are severely misguided and they probably worship a God of their own imagination. Because love is not love. God is love, is what the scriptures say. And that must inform everything we understand of love, of sexuality, of sex, gender, marriage. Because what we're going to see this morning is that God who created us is also the God who determines our sexual expression. We don't have the freedom to express our sexuality the way we want. Because God has created us, therefore God has the manual, He's written the manual on sexuality. And so the first thing I want us to see this evening is God's design in it all. And to see God's design on this ever-important topic, you need to start at the beginning. And if you're taking notes and you wanted to put a title on this message so you know where we're headed, it's Biblical Sexuality in a Sexually Sick World. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 26... Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, 
according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and every creepy thing that creeps on earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. To begin this conversation on the sexual perversion that's going on in our culture, most clearly showing itself right now in the push for all things LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, that entire thing. We need to start here. Every single human being is made in the image of God. That means that we are meant to reflect God. Being made in God's image means that we are moral creatures, that we're rational, that we're intelligent, creative, that we have emotions and affections, that we aren't an accident, but that we were intentionally created with purpose, and that each and every human being has worth and dignity. But if you don't account for your existence by being made in God's image, you're nothing more than a cosmic accident bumping around purposeless. You see being made in God's image here, he makes male and female, man and woman. It's a biological reality. It's so humorous that in a culture that says follow the science, they choose to close their eyes here. Notice, it says male and female. This idea that we use in our culture now of gender fluidity, it's really an impressive, impressive sleight of hand. Because gender, the way people are using it now, is dealing more with your own psychological conception and reality, which is never how gender was, the word gender was originally used. It was always used to gender, like the genus, where you're coming from. It had procreative ties. So biblically, gender is not a category. The same way racism is not a category. It's what is your sex? You are either male or female. The idea of gender fluidity is fiction. You know, today we're being told that gender is determined by how a person perceives themselves. It's subjective. I could be a 75-year-old man, but you know what? I perceive myself as a rip-roaring 20-something-year-old blonde. That's fiction. They see gender as a subjective reality. And the more conservative of these positions, if there is such a thing, sees your sex more as a bio is biological determined by what reproductive parts you have. So you could be a male according to sex, but your gender could be female or vice versa. Gender, subjective psychological reality, independent from biology is what the culture wants to tell you. That's lunacy. That's absolute lunacy. But okay, let me play the game with you on that. Should we not then have the subjective be interpreted by the objective? Therefore, if your gender is your subjective 
reality? Should not your objective sex be how you interpret your subjective understandings? Cancels it out. See, gender, if you're going to use the word gender, then just use it to mean your biological sex. We're created beings. We don't get the right to choose who we are based on some feeling that you have inside. In a previous life, I played baseball fairly competitively. It was something I loved. I wish I could have identified as six foot one because I would have got a contract for the MLB. It doesn't work that way. They looked at what were my biological characteristics. It was fixed. A biological male can know, can never be a female. No matter what they choose to say they feel or identify, it's not going to happen. And so this is what we call gender dysphoria. Your inward understanding of self is out of line with the biological reality. God made the male and female. He created you. He determines whether you're male or female, not you. God also created marriage, which is tied to this entire issue. So again, in the book of Genesis, if you go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Notice these key terms talking about marriage as they're tied to sexuality. A man, male, shall leave his father, another male, and his mother, a female, and cleave or hold fast to his wife, a female. And they shall become one flesh. It is a heterosexual union. There is no allowance here for a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his husband. That is not how it goes down. God has made this abundantly clear. And in Genesis 1.28, after he made them in his image, he gave them a command. It's known as the cultural mandate. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Again, I, I'm a theology major. I'm not a, a biology major. But if you put 100 men on an island and you put 50 men and 50 women on another island, you come back in 100 years, one of them is going to be a civilization. The other is going to be a fossil record. Because that is the way biology works. God created them male and female. And one of the reasons we see this is for procreation. And so we see here in marriage, it is the coming of a man and woman together and starting a new family unit that will then reproduce and create another family unit and so forth and so forth. That is an impossibility if you pursue a homosexual lifestyle outside of God's design. It's impossible. And so again, now we move, we've seen that God created us male and female, that God created marriage. And so what does God have to say about sexuality itself, about the actual act? Well, we see again that this is given to a man and woman. Sex is reserved for one man and one woman in a monogamous relationship. Genesis 2.24, we saw that a man shall leave his father and mother. We saw in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. 
one man, one woman in a monogamous marriage, not open-ended marriages, not multiple sexual partners. That's God's design. Jesus affirms this very thing. Sometimes people like to say that Jesus doesn't speak much on this issue. But in Matthew 19, listen to the words of Christ. Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. And he answered them, have you not read, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Last week, I saw and heard a disgusting thing. There was a pastor who said that Jesus taking on flesh understood what it's like to have some form of dysphoria. Because he was God, yet he was feeling, he felt like God, although he was in a different body. That is blasphemy. God made the male and female. There is no allowance here. Jesus affirms this. And so Jesus affirming sexuality, male and female, in marriage, means that any sexual activity outside of a heterosexual monogamous marriage is what the Bible calls sexual immorality. A common word used for this in the original language is porneo, by which we get the word pornography. The LGBTQ ever-expanding list, I, don't, I, I know I didn't get it right, is sexual immorality. So while the New Testament never may not use the words gay, lesbian, transgender, Know that that is all falling under the term sexual immorality. It is anything, sexual morality is any sexual expression or desire outside of God's intended design. So listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and sexual immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Chapter 7, verse 2 of Corinthians. But because of sexual immorality, each man is to have his own wife, and each man is to have her own husband. Paul is rooting again sexuality within one man, one woman relationship there. This is in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Galatians 5, 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. Notice that sexual, look, look at the list and look how sexual immorality is lumped in there. We can go on, First Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. 
We've been studying the book of Colossians, Colossians 3, 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual morality, impurity, passion. See, this is something God takes very serious. Sexual morality is a very prominent theme throughout the entire scriptures. Paul hits on this in so many of his letters. Perhaps one of the most startling verses about sexual morality is found in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. Right near the end there. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and, and abominable and murderers and sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Those who choose to live in ongoing, unrepentant, perpetual sexual immorality, whether expressed heterosexually or homosexually, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So knowing how strongly the scriptures speak on this, notice how our culture finds it, notice how our culture is violently opposed to the biblical position on all this, on sex, sexuality, and marriage. They see it as hateful. They see sex as fluid, marriage as oppressive to women, and sexuality about recreation, not about procreation and glorifying God. They seek to unravel all that God has put together because if you destroy the image of God and God's good intended purposes of sexuality, you destroy society. This is what we're seeing happening in Canada with Bill C-4. This is what we're seeing happening in our public schools, elementary kids being taught to identify according to the gender unicorn you'll see in some schools. They sow confusion. Kids no longer understand who they are. The biblical account of creation gets thrown up the window. Because if I'm not male or female, then I don't have to believe the Bible. This issue of sexual liberation, whatever you want to call it, is an attack on truth, an attack on God and his word. Now, what does the Bible have to say about homosexual expression and transgender expression? Let's look at God's word. Leviticus 18.22. It's interesting is even my unsaved friends who identify according to this lifestyle, they have limited just 18 memorized. Leviticus 18.22. And you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Verse 24. So do not defile, destroy, means dirty yourself by any of these things for all of for by all of these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. Do you see how homosexual living is tied to the destruction of nations? Destruction of nations here. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, 
both of them have committed an abomination and they shall surely be put to death. It's hard words. To understand what's going on here, we also have to understand the purpose of the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is all about the holiness of God and his people. And so what we're seeing in Leviticus 18 and 20 here is what holiness is to look like both in sexual expression and in marriage. Now, some people I've heard say, but that's the Old Testament. We're no longer under the law. Should we not eat shrimp also? Interesting. Let's go to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. This is Jesus speaking for those who want to elevate wrongly just red letters. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus didn't come to do away with what we see there in Leviticus. He quoted Leviticus 19 and 18. 19, 18. Look at Matthew 5.43, where he quotes Leviticus. Matthew 5.43, he says, You have heard it said, we shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Everybody loves this. Believer, unbeliever, hey, love is love. Love your enemies. You're supposed to love your neighbor. Love everybody. What are you saying that we shouldn't? You're judging. Jesus says to love, man. You know Jesus is quoting Leviticus chapter 19. Why do you why are you okay with Jesus quoting Leviticus 19 and wanting me to live by that, but you have an issue with Leviticus 18? You're not being consistent. You see, there's a tension. Loving your enemy, loving your neighbor, loving anyone involves telling them the truth. And to to Tell somebody that they are living outside of God's intended design for their sexuality is not hate, it's not judgment, it is loving. And if you're telling you what Jesus said to love, well, Jesus is quoting from the same book I was earlier, Leviticus. So let's be consistent. Jesus affirms the Old Testament teachings on these things. He did so in Matthew chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. I'm sorry, wrong, wrong passage. Paul affirms in Ephesians 5.31, the model of marriage between one man and one woman. 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 say this. But we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly, for the sinners, for the unholy and for the godless, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, 
for sexually immoral persons, for homosexuals, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. The law, Leviticus, is good to uphold because it shows God's intended purpose. It shows how man and woman ought to be living. We hold it up before them. And notice the list here. Sin is so grievous that he puts sexual morality and homosexuality next to murder. Which speaks to the destructive nature of it. My heart's burdened because I'm seeing far too many brothers and sisters in the church softening their positions on this. Because it doesn't seem loving. You know what? Let's not talk about it. You know what's interesting? What is this? I've heard this. Well, you know what? Let's let the world do what the world does. I mean, of course, they're not going to respond to God's teaching on this. As the church, we'll stay to the scriptures, but we'll let the world do what it did. We tried that and it failed with divorce. We'll let the culture just get divorced and throw marriages out the window because we're the church. We won't do that. We'll hold fast to the word of God. And yet look at how there's churches that have divorced ministries helping people get divorced. A little leaven destroys the whole lump. We can't. We have to stand firm and be vocal on this. What about transgenderism? Does the Bible speak on that? As I was preparing this message, I really didn't know how I would see that in the scriptures. But we see it in the book of Deuteronomy. So if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5. A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh your God. Chapter 23, verse 1 also says, No one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of Yahweh. You see, there were men back then that would cut off their male parts in service to false gods and, and become the eunuchs and be temple prostitutes. They would dress up as women. And we're seeing here God speaking out against that. I don't think, despite what some churches in the area may tell you, that loving your neighbor means you should go to Drag Queen Story Art Library. This is an abomination to the Lord. A, man sh- a woman should not wear man's clothing. A man should not wear women's clothing. And yet somehow we think it's cute and funny. I know people who say they're Christians, say they, they believe in God, and they love nothing more than to go to drag queen shows. Because it's funny. I know Christians who love watching the RuPaul show. It's funny. It's an abomination to the Lord, and they're not grieved by it. It's not funny. It's desecrating what God has deemed as good and holy. We, humanity, male and female, were the pinnacle, the crown of this creation. And when we do these things and affirm these things and are not bothered and troubled by these things, we are saying that the crown of his creation should just be thrown and dragged and dumped. So 
Listen to First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither be sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexual, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers. It's interesting. He uses the word the effeminate there. And again, this can point to what our culture today understands as transgenderism. The word literally means soft. In the most literal sense, it spoke of the of the more passive partner in a same-sex relationship among males. It would today be that those men who, who choose to dress up in drag and cross-dress and put makeup and do their nails and the girly stuff and all of that. That was the effeminates of those adopting patterns of lifestyle that are for women. It's a sin. It's a sin. It's interesting. I grew up uh, not a Christian. I grew up really into the hip hop culture, rap music, hip hop. Uh, when I was growing up, it was extremely masculine, right? Doctor wear tank tops, be very muscular, fight. Now some of the biggest rap stars are getting their nails done, and wearing these skinny jeans and putting on women's apparel. Even that genre of music that at one point was considered from a worldly sense, the height of masculinity has been infiltrated by this effeminate way of going about being a man. I'm so thankful for a pastor, a preacher, Paul Washer. He said to men, if you find yourself having a feminine side, crucify it. Because men were never meant to be effeminate in the same way that women were never meant to take on these positions, these roles that were tied to manhood. broke my heart. I, I, I love boxing. And I saw a video of a five-year-old girl. And they did a video over the next three years. She's, in, she's a boxer now. Really good boxer. But just throwing hands, getting in the ring with guys, and just taking shots. Your dad's applauding her. But that sacred femininity of hers, with each jab being removed. It's good to be a man. It's good to be a woman. God created it as such. The reason that there's such a pushback on that is because people hate God. At the heart of it, it's a hatred of God and his design. Raising sons, we say, I see it now with the raising of sons and, and seeing reading literature and seeing what's going on in the world and the news. There's, an, there's a right place to, for young men to be tender. We see this in, the, in King David. He wrote poetry. He wept over his sin. He didn't turn in his mass, what it meant to be a man. And there's a, but there's this idea of little boys being made into little girls, basically, with their behaviors and expressions, creating effeminate little boys. Masculine little girls. And then we wonder, as they are being raised that way, as they're growing up in this godless world, in these godless educational systems, why they begin to adopt this sexual immorality, this LGBTQ homosexual lifestyle. Because we have removed the authority of God's word 
We have thrown away God's design. And we have all in the name of, hey, we just want to love our neighbor, at least in the church. And to those who, I would say, are empathetic, not sympathetic, empathetic to this within the church, your empathy is supporting godlessness. Listen to what it says at the end of Romans chapter 1. Romans 132. And although they know the righteous requirement of God, and that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. We live in a world where people are just giving hearty approval to this, but there are far too many in the church giving hearty approval to this as well. Church, I'm telling you, this will be the Trojan. This is one of the Trojan horses coming into it. We don't want to offend, and so we let people remain damned. God made man, God made woman. That's what you are. Let me ask a question. Have you ever taken a moment to realize that this sexual immorality that's called homosexuality and transgenderism and all that is less about sexual desire and more about idolatry. It's really an idolatry issue at the heart of it all. So I want us to briefly walk through a section of Romans chapter one to see that. And I do mean briefly because this would be sermons upon sermons. But let's look at Romans chapter one. We're going to start at verse 18. Listen to Romans chapter one, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world has invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. You see, there without excuse, every single person knows that God is real. The world we live in, the way we are biologically made, our consciences all testify that God is real. And therefore, every single person is without excuse. There's no such thing as an atheist. People simply are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. This is at the heart of this sexual perversion going on. It is at the heart of homosexuality. It is at the heart of, of transgenderism. It is the suppressing of truth, the truth of God, because it's visible to everybody. But because they choose to suppress it, God's wrath is revealed against them. And we're going to see it's revealed by him handing them over to their sinful ways. That's what the rest of Romans 1 is, is, is showing. God handing them over to their sin because they choose to suppress the truth of God. So look at verses 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, 
so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Here we see, because they suppressed the truth, sinful man rather worshiped things that are created and false gods of their imaginations and the one true God. They rather give glory to what he's made than to him himself. And as a result, it tells us that their minds have become futile and that their hearts have been dark, are foolish and dark. Right? So the way you think, the way you process reality now isn't working properly. It's futile. Your heart with all of its desires and passions and will has become darkened. It no longer has guiding light. It's given up wisdom and it's full of foolishness. And that shows himself by them making an exchange. They exchange the truth of God for lies. Woe to those who call good evil, evil good. Look at verse 23. It said they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man. Their mind doesn't work properly. The person apart from Christ is not able to process truth. And one of the ways we're seeing this is in the sexual expression of our day. And I have to go back. We talked about those who give party approval. Is that not what the legislation in Canada is doing, giving party approval to the, to the wickedness? Is that not what our country is doing here in America at the federal level, at the state level? the town, city, village level at the schools, they are giving hearty approval to that which is wicked. So let's look at verse 26 now, 27. And in the same way, uh, and for this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. For their females exchange a natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the males abandoned the natural function of the female and burned in their desire toward one another. Males with males committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. They gave up truth. They adopted lies. They stopped worshiping God instead of worshiping themselves and other created things. Their minds become futile. Their hearts become darkened. And now it's showing itself here in sinful sexual desires, specifically in the form of homosexuality. Now, why did I say this is idolatry? Because they're worshiping their sexual desire instead of God. I feel this, therefore I must indulge it. Idolatry. They're bowing to the God of sexual, homosexual desire. It's the same for the heterosexual who, who chooses to pursue sexual morality. It's idolatry. Refusing to submit to God's design, they are pursuing their distortion. And they started with the mind and the heart. Futile in the mind, darkened in heart which tells us a very important truth. This homosexual transgender nonsense isn't sinful simply if you do it, it's sinful if you desire it. 
We must, if somebody is struggling with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, the temptation itself is not sin. That temptation, we all struggle with temptation. If that temptation is put before you, that is not sinful that you're being tempted, but what you do with it can be sinful. You must repent of that desire. And you should ask, must ask God to remove it and to give you strength to not indulge it or entertain it. It's out of the heart that actions flow. So if you don't crucify that temptation at the heart level, it's only a matter of time before it shows itself in action. Notice the consequence here, verses 28 through 32. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper. Having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, there are gossips, slanders, haters of God, violence, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience of parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the righteous requirement of God, that those who practice these things, such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. Interesting. Did you notice that's quite the extensive list? But what is the one sin that he chose to unpack over multiple verses? Homosexuality. Why, Paul? Why? Because when you destroy the image of God through sexual perversion, all other signs of sins will abound. Paul gave extensive focus to the sin of sexual, of, of homosexuality. Because it, it is an attack on what it means to be. The LGBTQ lifestyle agenda is a direct attack on God's creation. Which means it's not a battle about sexuality, it's a battle of truth. You know why churches are so weak on this topic? Because they don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. It's no longer sola scriptura, it's sola feelings, sola experience. If sexuality destroys the individual, then sexuality, if, if, if perverse sexuality, if homosexuality destroys individuals, then it destroys nations, it destroys worlds. This is why the church must stand and not be silent as legislation is being passed seeking to silence the word of God in the name of sexual immorality, specifically the homosexual transgender form. It is destructive. There is so much data out there of those who have, especially at their teens, maybe I'm a man, maybe I'm a woman, and they go and they take the hormones and the treatments and the surgeries only to later on in life be plagued with depression and wishing they had never done. I wonder how many of those young men and young women, if somebody was said, you're made in God's image, you have dignity and worth, he made you a man, he made you a woman for a specific reason. I wonder how much that could have been avoided. We can't be silent. We can't. 
We can't be silent. We can't allow legislation to pass, but we can't be silent with the people that are on the streets we live on and our family members and our friends. We need to pray for godly wisdom and discernment. We need to pray for a tender heart because the truth is abrasive. We are to be abrasive. But we must speak. We must proclaim what the word of God says. I also want to make sure, I'm not saying that this sin is greater than other sins. But do you realize out of all the sins that are listed in, the, in these passages that Paul lists, which is the one sin that's seeking that the, the world is seeking to legislate? <coughs> They're passing legislation on homosexual and transgender issues. They're not passing legislation on pride. And so this is why it's such a spotlight issue. It's not saying that this is worse than other things. It's not saying that homosexual uh, sin is worse than heterosexual uh, immorality. But we're speaking because at this point in our, in our, in our world, in the culture, the governing forces are seeking to legislate darkness. We have a responsibility to be alike. For those who are in that place struggling, there is one hope you have. There's one hope that all of us have. That is the hope that is Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter six. Let's start at verse nine. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You stop there. That's bad news. But we have verse eleven. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. Here's the amazing thing, church. All of us can find ourselves somewhere in that list. And so all of us were the, and such were some of you. And so if you're out there today and, and, and you are struggling with gender dysphoria, struggling with same-sex attraction, the hope is still Christ for all people of all struggles. And if you're seeking to come alongside a man or a woman in this area, you go here. Man, I'm in that list also. You're not alone. We're all in that list somewhere. And the hope is Christ. And look what it says the hope is. Because you were washed. You were made clean. You were given a new heart. It's regeneration. It's the, it's, the, it's the receiving of the new self with new desires. And then he says you were sanctified. Meaning this new life with the new desires gives you a new way to live. You don't have to live in the patterns of old. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 6 on that point. Romans 6 verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were given over. And having been freed from sin, 
he became slaves of righteousness. And you go to verse 22. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you have your benefit leading to sanctification and the end of eternal life. This is the hope that Christ gives. He will wash you. He will make you clean. He will sanctify you. And it says justify. He will justify you. He will present you before God as not guilty. The perfect, spotless, sinless life that Jesus lived will be credited to you. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. He became sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. Here's the amazing thing. Is that the hope for the homosexual, the hope for the transgender is the same hope for me. Christ. And so as a church, just know this. You have more in common with somebody struggling with gender dysphoria and homosexuality than you realize. And you guys both have the same need. We're speaking out against how the government is legislating and how we need to talk and how so many are affirming this, which is true. But I want it to be an encouragement to step into that gap and speak. There's a great book by called uh, the, Unlikely, the Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Butterfield. She was a lesbian. She was a feminist professor of queer studies. And it was through a pastor inviting her to dinner with him and his wife over a series of, of meetings, sharing Jesus and praying with her, that she was saved. And she is outspoken about the power of the gospel to change hearts. Make friends with people that are struggling with this. Homosexuality and transgenderism is not the flu. You don't become friends and catch it. It doesn't work that way. We, need, we don't need to be scared of befriending. We have to come alongside so they can hear the message of Christ, the hope. It's so important. Again, for those struggling with those temptations, the temptation isn't sin, but it has to be repented of. God may call you to, God, does, God may not ever remove those desires. And so he may call you to a life of sexual celibacy. Or he may save you from those desires and you get married and it's still to so be faithful to the, to the one husband or one wife in a monogamous relationship. We also as a church have to make sure that we don't allow certain things. I hear people say, well, I'm a gay Christian. That's become very common. That was an issue I had in previous church. We should never identify according to our sin. You never do. Galatians 2.20, for I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm simply a Christian. I'm not a Puerto Rican Christian. I'm not a private. I'm just a Christian. I'm not a gay Christian. You're simply a Christian that has, this is where you're struggling. Remember, sin will seek to show itself in people's lives in different ways. For some, it is homosexuality, transgenderism. For others, it's anger. So we also have to be careful to be how we judge, lest we think we're so much better than people. That is a legitimate danger. 
We want to be tender, but we want to be truthful. Be honest. This is what God says. This is who God created you to be. We need to be discerning. If kids are in public schools, you need to be discerning parents with that. Kids are in Christian schools, you need to be discerning with that. Be honest. Everybody's been damaged by sin, so we must love people, all people without exception. We must share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only hope. We need to make sure that we don't take certain sins and put them in an, in an elite class of like really grievous sins. But certain sins do have greater consequences. And at this time in our culture, the sin of homosexuality and transgenderism, the consequences, if we allow this to just run rampant, will be devastating. It'll destroy the very fabric of what it means to be human and made in God's image. And so let's speak, church, and understand what the scriptures have to say. Let's guard our hearts from adopting this. I would venture to think that if you were to be honest with yourself, you're, you're probably a little, over the last five years, your position on this has probably softened a little bit for some. I know believers, people that I would have thought never. Well, I don't know. The Bible's kind of the, the big thing. You've seen it. You've heard this with prominent speakers. Well, I don't know. The Bible whispers on this topic. So let's make sure we don't shout where the Bible whispers. It's a lack in the pit of hell. The Bible doesn't whisper on anything. He's a line of Judah. He warns. He doesn't whisper. So let's make sure that we, out of fear of man, do not start to backpedal. Let's hold firm. Let's hold strong. Let's do it in love. But remember, it's not love or truth. It's love born from truth. And so we have to know what God has to say about this. Let me close in a word of prayer for all that's happening in Canada, for our brothers and sisters, uh, in the midst of this, and for our own nation.